0: Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 262 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Theodora Goss. Her story Singing of Mount Abora won the 2008 World Fantasy Award for Short Fiction, and her work has also been nominated for many other major awards, including the 2007 Nebula Award for *Pip and the Fairies. She's also the author of Octavia is Lost in the Hall of Masks, which won the 2004 Riesling Award for Best Long Poem, as well as the novel The Thorn and the Blossom, A Two-Sided Love Story, and the short story collection In the Forest of Forgetting. And we'll be speaking with her today about her new novel, The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter. And now here's our interview with Theodora Goss. All right, so we're here with Theodora Goss. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, how are you doing, David?
0: I'm good, good. Okay, so your new book is called The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter, and it was inspired by some of the research that you did for your PhD. So tell us about that.
1: So I'm doing this PhD, which is a crazy thing to do anyway. It just about killed me. And I wrote this 400-page doctoral dissertation, and it was on... Victorian Gothic fiction and anthropology, but it was really about monsters, and I was asking a central question. The central question was, how come these really great monster texts, the ones that we love so much, like Dracula and Jekyll and Hyde, all of these, how come they were written approximately from 1870 to 1910? Like, that's the great age of the modern monster. And I thought, why is that? What was going on at that time? And, you know, I gave this kind of complicated scholarly answer that had to do with the rise of evolutionary thinking after Darwin, um, but specifically the rise of anthropology. Anyway, that was all scholarly stuff. So I wrote this, this dissertation on all these monster stories. And there's something I realized that didn't really make it into the dissertation, but that fascinated me which was that so many of these mad scientists and the mad scientist becomes a really important figure around this time because there are a lot of scientists around. Okay. And a lot of people thought, ooh, science is really, really scary. What's going on here? Um, so, so a lot of these mad scientists, somewhere along their trajectory, create female monsters. Um, the ones I really noticed from the text that I was studying were like in the island of Dr. Moreau. Dr. Moreau creates a woman out of a puma. A lot of people don't really talk about this, but this is one of the main things that he is doing during the action of the island of Dr. Moreau. He's creating the puma woman. She never even says anything, but she's actually really important to the action of the text because she kills Moreau. She is the one who kind of drive the action of the island of Dr. Moreau. So she was fascinating. And then there were others in texts that people don't necessarily know about or know very much about, like in um, a Victorian-era novella called The Great God's Pan*. There's a Dr. Raymond who creates this woman named Helen and she has this power to communicate with the great God Pan, who's this power that's behind everything. Um, and she can bring the classical world back into modernity. So she's got these really weird powers that have to do with brain surgery that he actually did on her mother, which is like classic mad scientist stuff, you know, turning animals into human beings or splitting people's brains into to give them extraordinary powers. And then, of course, we have the classic story of Frankenstein, and Frankenstein, there's no Bride of Frankenstein in the book, but Frankenstein almost creates a female monster, and he thinks a lot about it, because the creature he's created is like, give me a bride, nobody loves me, you know, I need a girlfriend. Um, so that's another example. And those are just a few. There are, there are a bunch more, but there are these really important, interesting female monster figures. And they die, or they, um, I think actually, I think they all die. There's one exception, which I can talk about. But other than that, they all die. And um, they don't get to say a whole lot, usually. Sometimes we get little bits and pieces of their stories, but we don't get a whole lot. And I thought, you know what? That's fascinating. Why is that? And there's some explanations that have to do specifically with the period. But what I really wanted to do was not write another academic paper or write another doctoral dissertation, for goodness sake, Hmm. but I wanted to actually tell their stories. And so (laughs) instead of turning my doctoral dissertation into a book, I wrote a novel, which is another 400 pages, which almost killed me, too. But that's okay. But it was also so much fun. And so the novel is about five of these female figures three of whom come from the literature and two of whom I created, but there was a reason I created them and created them the way I did. Um, and uh, and it's about them, their stories, and how they tell those stories. So it's giving voices to these female monsters that come from the literature that didn't get to speak in the original text. Do you want me to describe the book?
0: Uh, actually, I, I want to ask you uh, first about the, the short story, The Mad Scientist's Daughter, and then we'll move into the book. So could yeah. you talk about how you came up with the how you, you first started putting this into prose form?
1: Well, you know, I think what happened was I, I was really bothered by this, not bothered like, oh, I'm so bothered by this. I have to do something. But it was like when a mosquito bites you and it's irritating and you just keep scratching at it, even though you probably shouldn't. Um so this idea of female monsters who didn't get to tell their stories bothered me. And the first one that really bothered me was the Puma woman from the island of Dr. Moreau. Because I thought she's so important and all she does is kill him and die. That's it. So even before I wrote The Mad Scientist's Daughter, I wrote another short story that I don't know who's even read it, but it was called The Puma. It was reprinted in a book of um, cat stories edited by Ellen Datlow. And that's her story um, that I told in a slightly different way. And that was kind of my first stab at it, it was like, this is a problem. It's irritating me. And so I'm going to write this story. And it came out. Okay. But then I thought, what about the other female monsters? And that's when I wrote the mad scientist story, which is a stronger story. You know, as a writer, you kind of know that you've got some okay stories and you've got some really good ones. And I think, hopefully the mad scientist's daughter is one of the good ones. And also, this is when I was really starting to experiment with ways of telling stories. So the uh, format is experimental. And it, it's the story of the five girls. Um, we've got Mary Jekyll, who is the daughter of Dr. Jekyll, the respectable scientist. Diana Hyde, who is the daughter of the notorious... Mr. Hyde, murderer and laboratory assistant. And then we've got Catherine Moreau, who is the Puma woman created by Moreau on his terrible island of beast men. Then we've got Beatrice Rappuccini. Beatrice Rappuccini comes from one of my favorite short stories by Nathaniel Hawthorne. It's the short story, it's the story of a woman whose father, Dr. Rappuccini, a great botanist, makes her poisonous. He has a garden of poisonous plants from which he makes medicines, and he has raised Beatrice to take care of his plants. So she becomes imbued with all of these poisons. Um, it's not told from her perspective. It's told from the perspective of a young man named Giovanni who sees this stunningly beautiful woman in the house, the garden of the house next door. He falls desperately in love with her and he goes and um, visits her. He finds a way to, to meet her. And one day he realizes not only that she's poisonous, but that he's starting to become poisonous. Um, And I recommend everyone read the story. I'm not going to go over the whole plot, but in the end, guess what? She dies. So sorry, <laughs> spoiler. But, you know, it was written in the 1830s. So, you know, it, it's I don't think I need to keep that secret. Um. And uh, uh, so that's Beatrice Rappuccini. She's poisonous. And the last one is Justine Frankenstein. And Justine Frankenstein is the, the female monster that Frankenstein never creates in the actual story. And in my version, what's happened is that he has taken one of the family maids whose name is Justine. She actually is in the original novel, uh, Frankenstein. Um, Her name is Justine Moritz, and she was a maid. She was actually accused of committing a murder, of murdering one of the Frankenstein children. Again, not a spoiler, because this was written a really long time ago. Hmm. So Justine is accused of committing uh, murder, of murdering little William, Frankenstein's youngest brother. And actually, it's the monster who's murdered William. But Justine is hanged for that murder. And in my version, I didn't want justine to just die. Um, I mean, you know, it wasn't, nothing was her fault. It was all Frankenstein's fault, really. So in my version, he takes her body and he turns her into a mate for his monster, which doesn't work out very well because she's like, I, I don't actually want to do this. You know, I'm not, I'm not anybody's mate. Um. So yeah, so the short story was really them talking to each other, and in a short story you don't have a lot of space. So it's experimental. It's their voices. It's them saying things about their lives. It's funny, but there's no real plot, and that's where I
0: started. And uh, I don't. Did, did you mention Helen Raymond because she's in the short story as well?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I. So. Yeah, someone asked me, actually, um, on Reddit recently, what happened to Helen, because she doesn't appear in the novel. And I said, actually, she does, but it's kind of a secret how she, is. well, if you know the story, you can figure it out. Um, yeah, so Helen. Helen Raymond does appear, and she's the one who's from The Great God's Hand. She appears in a short story as one of the girls. Who have banded together to form a club in London. So all these girl monsters have found each other and they formed a club and they live together in London. That's the premise of the short story.
0: Right. And you said that when it appeared on Strange Horizons, that it got a really strong response from readers. Could you talk about that response?
1: Yeah. Um, I was so happy about that. It was, I think it was actually voted the favorite story for the year. Which was awesome, and you know, it was a finalist for a Locus Award, but um, it it didn't win because there was some other guy. I don't know if you've ever heard of um, Neil Gaiman. (laughs) So he, yeah, he actually won, and I was second behind him. So I was like, yes, I'm second behind Neil Gaiman. This (laughs) is awesome.
0: Okay, so that so that must have really encouraged you then to go ahead with turning it into a novel.
1: It did. Um, That encouraged me, and. Also, I felt like I hadn't told the entire story, like there were things that um, that I hadn't said, because what I did in the story was say, OK, all of these girls have found each other. They're in London. They're living together. But how did they get there? So the novel, in a way, is really the prequel to the short story.
0: Right. And so and you also include another well-known fictional character uh sherlock holmes right at what stage did you did you decide to include him
1: well i think as soon as i realized that this was going to be a mystery because you've got to have sherlock holmes i mean really what i did with this novel is i put in all the stuff that i want in a novel and i want sherlock holmes because i've been in love with mr holmes you know since i was a teenager because he's awesome um so as soon as I knew this was a mystery, I knew the first thing that was going to happen was that Mary was going to go visit Sherlock Holmes. Actually, you know, I just realized where that idea came from. It came from looking at a map. So now I'm I'm a teacher um, at a university and I teach a lot of these texts. And one of the things I always have students do is look at the map at the beginning of Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and I say, look, this is how realistic this novel is, that you can actually map out where the characters are going. And what I realized was that the place where um, Jekyll lives, presumably, because we're never given an address for him. We actually do get um, uh, fairly specific addresses for some other characters. We don't know exactly where he lives, but we know it's right near Regent's Park. And Baker Street runs right down the other side of Regent's Park. So I was like, wait a minute. Um, If if Dr. Jekyll was around in the 1880s, around the time that that novel was published, he would have run into Sherlock Holmes because the Sherlock Holmes stories were being published right around the same time. And they actually lived pretty close to each other.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, did you ever worry that putting Sherlock Holmes in the story would overshadow the female heroes
2: yeah
1: i I did i don't know i just went for it (laughs) i mean um it, it wasn't so much that he would overshadow them because i knew that they were that it was basically their story um i think what i was more worried about or at least conscious of, is that a lot of people have written about Sherlock Holmes. And in a way, this is not my new take on Sherlock Holmes. What I did when I created this Sherlock was, I really didn't create him. I went back and I read the old Holmes stories and I thought, okay, who do I think this guy is? I really wanted to go back to the original, partly because I think a lot of people misinterpret Holmes there's this sense in which um, people say, oh, he's sort of, uh, he's kind of a sociopath and he doesn't feel anything. He has no emotions and, you know, he doesn't even pay attention to whether the earth goes around the sun or the other way around. And I was like, you know what? Some some of this is this misunderstanding things Holmes says to Watson to tease him because Holmes has a sense of humor. It's this really dry, understated sense of humor but if you've read all of the Holmes stories, and I've actually read all of the Holmes stories, <laughs> um, you get a sense for the fact that he's a really nice, decent guy. He's, you know, he's got his quirks and it's life is difficult for him in some ways. He doesn't fit very well into society. Someone like Holmes really wouldn't. But he is deeply humane. And so that Holmes was the Holmes that I took. And I, I thought, you know, I'm not making this guy up. This is just the way I see Conan Doyle's Holmes. And I also love Conan Doyle. I've read a lot of Conan Doyle, including his poetry. Nobody knows he wrote poetry, but he did. Um, so, yeah, it, I was a little worried about including Holmes because he's such a traditional figure. And. The, the thing I was even more worried about actually was getting details wrong. There are little details like what kind of gun he uses or the Baker Street Boys, um, issues of timing. I had to create a, a timeline for this novel and try to make sure that I was matching up different things uh, correctly. So that was more of a worry because there's so many people out there who love Sherlock Holmes and they know all the details. I mean, they've read all the stories too. And if I get something wrong, they're gonna know. Um, it's inevitable that I've gotten something wrong. So, to all the home out there, to the true fanatics, I have so much respect for you, and I apologize in advance.
0: You had to be sure that you got his toilet right, right?
1: I thought well. I sort of saw his toilet. <laughs> I mentioned that somewhere, and I guess you read it. So one of the things I did was I did a lot of research in London. I went to London twice over two summers, and I walked around a lot. Um, I went to the Sherlock Holmes Museum, which is not a 221 Baker Street, but it's really useful because it gives you a sense for what the buildings look like, what the buildings look like generally on Baker Street, um, because they're built in a very specific fashion that belongs to the time period. And um you can see how big the rooms were, like how many strides it would take to get across a room. You can imagine how full of just staff Holmes's parlor would have been. And one funny thing I noticed was that the the loo <laughs> for the Brits, um, was at the top of the house, which I suspect has to do with um Plumbing and water pressure and also smells, um, but I noticed that the toilet was a Victorian era toilet. And we think, oh, a toilet—it's just like this thing you want to hide, and and it's this white porcelain thing that nobody wants to look at. It was beautiful. It had all these designs on it in um, blue transferware. It was this really ornate, gorgeous toilet. And I thought, you know what? In the Victorian era, when not a lot of people have indoor toilets yet, they must have been like, we've got a toilet. This is a beautiful toilet. We're going to make it look so great.
0: <laughs> and so then where else in London did you go for research?
1: Oh, gosh. Um Let me think. Uh, I went to Whitechapel. So um, a friend of mine gave me a tour, who lives in London, gave me a tour of Whitechapel. And It's very modern now, obviously, but you could see some of the old twisty streets. He did give me a tour of where the Jack the Ripper murders happened, and my 19th century London is not real 19th century London. It's imaginary 19th century London. It comes straight out of the pages of Jacqueline Hyde, out of Sherlock Holmes, and actually there are things that those authors leave out. For example, um, Someone asked me at one point, someone who was a scholar, um, do you have any idea why Holmes never rides the subway? There was a subway around, at that time, the subway had already, part of the subway system had already been built. Holmes never even thinks about taking the subway. And she said, you know, I, it may have something to do with the class system that Mr. Holmes would not take the subway. He's always taking cats, which... Um, Maybe true. I mean, working people usually took the subway, but there are things about real London that those books leave out. So in my London, there weren't Jack the Ripper murders. Instead, there were these horrific Whitechapel murders. It's kind of like alternative history, but it's alternative literary history. Um, so I went to Whitechapel. I went to, I, I walked along the, um, the embankment of the Thames to get a sense for what it's like close to the river. I went to the South Bank where something happened. Uh, I spent a lot of time walking around Hyde Park and Regent's Park. Some of what I did was actually time how long it takes to get between things. Central London is not as big as you would think. And you can walk, it's sometimes a long walk, but you can walk between like the British Museum, for example, and... Um, and uh where <laughs> Mary's house is located, which is eleven Park Terrace, which doesn't really exist, but it's based on um some uh houses actually close to Regents Park. The place I went that was actually my favorite was it was Lincolns and Fields, but right next to Lincolns and Fields there's the Royal College of Surgeons and that has the Hunterian Museum, which has anatomical specimens from the 19th century, this huge collection, which is fascinating and creepy. And so there were scenes that have to do with Beatrice that take place there. And, and I went and I saw the layout of the building. And I looked at some pictures of what it looked like in the 19th century, because the interior has all been changed. Actually, my favorite spot, one of my favorite parts of writing the novel um, happened when I, I walked around that neighborhood and there's a row of houses across Lincolnson Fields from the Royal College of Surgeons. And I went behind those houses because I wanted to see what the alleyway looked like. There's a scene that takes place in that alleyway. And I was trying to figure out how in the world to write that scene. And I saw a drain pipe and I thought, Oh, right. Exactly. External drain pipes. Cause the houses were built a hundred years before. And so all the plumbing actually ends up being external or a lot of the plumbing. And I thought, okay, that's the drain pipe. That's the way that this particular scene is gonna happen. So I found a drain pipe. I was so excited.
0: <laughs> do they really have Charles Charles Babbage's brain in a jar?
1: Yeah. They do. And the the Irish giant, I'm sorry, I, I forgot his name, but this was someone who um had a genetic condition that made him grow very tall. He was known as the Irish giant and they have his skeleton. All of the details like that, those are real. And street names, uh, there are a couple I made up, but, uh, cause I don't want anyone actually, you know, going to Mary Jekyll's address and bothering somebody there. I want that to be imaginary. But, um, things like street names are, are, they're real street names, but what I had to make sure of was that the street existed in the 19th century but sometimes they don't so one of the funny things about writing this book is that there were days when I would be crawling around the floor on maps and I would have a map of modern London and also uh, a friend gave me a map of London at different it's, it's actually like three maps I have maps from different time periods um, and so I have street names from different time period, like, um, I have 18th century London, 19th century London, and then I was working off a contemporary map. And seeing how things changed was really, really helpful.
0: I was wondering if this is historical, this you, you talk about this sort of high class brothel where the women would read, they were um, instructed to read the times and the financial times and things so that they would be uh, more interesting to talk to.
1: Those specific details I made up, but there were different levels of brothels and, um, there were guides. So some of the information we have is from guidebooks and I did look at some of those. There were guides to gentlemen who were going to London for the weekend and they would list brothels. They would list prostitutes who, you know, just worked out of their own spaces or their own homes. Um, and it would give you details, which is, it is one of those really weird glimpses into the past where you think, gosh, the 19th century kind of sucked <laughs> um, because there was a huge problem with prostitution. There was a huge problem with venereal disease. And I left that stuff in the corners of the novel because the, the Victorian era was gritty. I mean, our era is gritty, right? Our, we have all sorts of social problems. Well, the Victorian era did too. Um I'm not sure they had – they had different kinds of social problems than we do. Some of our problems they didn't have. Um, but it was dirty. It was gritty. It was lively. It was interesting. It was diverse. And I wanted to make sure that all of that came in. And so you see it in these little glimpses.
0: That's really, uh, this this paragraph kind of jumped out at me. One of the characters says, We let Beatrice decorate and try to talk us into supporting the, lab- the labor movement, aestheticism, and rational dress – Mary retorted that we were conspicuous enough without dressing differently from everyone else, but she had bought a bicycle. Mrs. Poole was scandalized. Could you just unpack some of that stuff? The bicycle and rational dress? What like what are the what was it like at that time?
1: Okay. So the novel takes place in the imaginary eighteen nineties. But the imaginary eighteen nineties are based on the real eighteen nineties. And there was a lot going on in the eighteen nineties. We have this false idea of the Victorian era, that it was kind of static and people dressed in nice clothes and they socialized and drank tea. And that's not what it was like. Actually, in the 1890s, I mean, if you think about the end of the 20th century, when all of a sudden people were like, oh, my God, the Internet, the the amount of change that happened between 1970 and 2000. That's about the amount of change that was happening between 1870 and 1900. It was enormous. Um, and uh, there were social movements. So there was a lot of labor unrest. There was a depression during that time. People were out of work. There was a lot of poverty. Um, there were all sorts of problems with working in factories. So there was a labor movement trying to address those problems. Uh I'm trying to remember now what I said. There was the labor movement. There was rational dress. So rational dress was, there was a suffrage movement, which is was the uh, movement for votes for women. But there was also a more general movement for women's rights. And there was something called a new woman. The new woman was actually a term that was used to mock these types of women. And these were um, unnatural women who wanted such terrible things as The right to vote and to go to college and they wanted to be able to walk out without a chaperone. Um, we're talking kind of upper middle class women here. And all of this was pretty scandalous at the time that women would want to do these things like become educated. Um, it was seen as dangerous. It was seen as something that would threaten the social order. Rational dress was a movement to first get rid of the corset because the corset which women had worn in one form or another for a very long time, basically most of the century, um, really did affect your ability to do a lot of things. Um, I mean, the a Victorian woman wearing a corset is very different from a modern woman wearing a corset because a Victorian woman would have been wearing it from a very young age. So it would have been much more comfortable for her. And the rationale for a corset at the time was not just a fashion rationale. It was thought that women's bodies were weak and they needed support. So the corset would actually give you support. It would help you do things. Now, nowadays we get that support from, you know, having muscles. <laughs> but um, but actually, if, if you'd worn a corset all of your life, you wouldn't necessarily have developed some of those muscles. Um The abdominal muscles that we really focus on in our pilates classes, for example. Um, the idea behind rational dress was partly that the emphasis and also the pressure would be taken off the waist and it would be, the the emphasis would be more on the shoulders. The dress would hang from the shoulders and it was not tight on the waist. So the format, the, the hang, the design of the dress changed. Um, and, and this was seen This was widely mocked, by the way. The the people who wore a rational dress were like pre-Raphaelites and SBs and people who hung out with us for a while. They were kind of the radical French. Um, The funny thing is, if you look back at some of these dresses that women were wearing, some of them look a little silly because they're based on medieval dresses, so we wouldn't wear them except to a costume party. But Victorian-era rational dress is actually what gives us the structure of modern clothes. So you look at like Coco Chanel and you can see the line from rational dress to the innovations of Chanel much later. Um, but it was a real controversy at the time. And there were fairly conservative magazines like Punt that would really mock women wearing rational dress in cartoons. And they would, they were seen as ugly because, you know, they didn't have that beautiful little waist. What else? Labor movement, rational dress. Bicycles. Oh, bicycles. Yeah, so bicycles were kind of a controversy. Bicycles were amazing because if you're a woman walking around London, first of all, if you're a upper-middle-class young lady, you're not supposed to be walking out by yourself at all. You've got to wait for someone to go with you. And it's going to be a maid, or if you don't have a maid, it might be a female relative, it might be an older sister, it might be your mom, but you need to have a chaperone. And one of the problems is that you know, London, it's an urban space. You could be accosted. There was this idea that it was dangerous. A bicycle changes that equation because if you get on a bicycle, if someone bothers you, you can actually get away from them. Plus, you can move around quickly without having to get carriage, right? Having to pay for a cab. Like, proper young woman would not ride in a cab by herself. Or having to get on an omnibus and just jostle with all the other people on an omnibus. So a bicycle gave you a lot of freedom. Uh, there was a bicycle craze at the time, but it was seen as kind of controversial. For one thing, you know, you can't ride a bicycle side saddle. You have to ride a stride. And that's kind of masculine. That was seen as a little masculine. Um, sometimes women wore split skirts. That was close to trousers. And trousers, mm-hmm. you know, a big no-no for women because it took away your grace and femininity. So, bicycles were controversial. Someone a little old fashioned, like in school, would be a little concerned (laughs) about a proper young lady like Mary Jekyll riding a bicycle, but she does it anyway.
0: Well, I mean, given all those social conventions, is it challenging at all then to write a kind of a mystery adventure story, um, (laughs) given all those restrictions on what women are supposed to be doing?
1: Some. There's this scene in book and I don't want to so no spoilers. this is spoiler free but I'll tell you about the scene what happens is that um, Mary wants to go solve something with Sherlock Holmes and this is cool it's like you're not getting in a train alone with a man I don't think so I'm coming with you so Mary wants to go solve a mystery she's got to bring her housekeeper along <laughs> right and then he goes they, they go to this place, uh, this small town, and he's like, okay, I'm going to get information, so I'm going to go into the pub. And Mrs. Poole's like, you're not going into the pub, Miss Mary. And and Mary can't go in. She has to wait outside for Sherlock Holmes to get information. So, yeah. Um, and this part of the movement of the novel is Mrs. Poole changing a little bit, Mary changing a little bit, everybody sort of giving and taking. and um, all of the characters moving a little more toward modernity. Now, I have to say, these characters, they have different experiences and they come from different eras. So Mary's been raised as an English lady. Catherine Moreau, she's a kuma, right? <laughs> she hasn't been raised as an English lady. So her preconceptions are totally different. Um, Catherine, sorry, not Catherine, Beatrice. Beatrice has also been raised in a different way because she is from Italy. So she knows many of these conventions. Um, She has a slightly different attitude toward them. And then, of course, there's Justine Frankenstein. And actually, Justine um, is not modern. Justine was created 100 years ago. So the conventions that she knows are from a different time period. Interestingly enough, I didn't really discuss this in the novel, but a funny thing happened in the 19th century, which is that at the beginning of the century, the restrictions on women were lighter than they became later on. So it, it there's like a dip, right? There was it was a little bit easier for women at one point and then it got a little harder and more restrictive because around the middle of the century you get this idea of the separate spheres and the idea that women really should be in the home. And then it, it changes again and toward the end of the century women have a little bit more freedom.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. I heard you say in an interview that there were no travel restrictions crossing borders in Europe for a, a time, and then the restrictions came in. And then with the EU, they went out again and that it's a sort of cycle.
1: Yeah, that's for the second book. So for the second book, the research was even more difficult. And so there is a second book. So the first book, everyone can go read now. The second one will be coming out next summer. And I'm currently working on revisions. So, hmm. yay, fun. Um it well, it is fun, but revisions are also hard. But in the second book, these characters, these female monsters of mine, um, have to go solve a mystery in Europe, and so they have to cross the British Channel and venture into the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which meant that I had to do a whole another big lot of research that had to do with the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the end of the 19th century. Um, which was fun because I went to Vienna. I walked around Vienna. I did the exact same thing that I had done in London. One of the things I found out was I, I, thought, I thought it would be difficult. I thought, oh, my gosh, they're going to need passports. They're going to need visas because I made assumptions about what the time period was like. And they didn't. There had been more passport restrictions earlier in the 1800s. And then they were actually taken away. It was really easy to travel around Europe right around the end of the 1800s. You didn't necessarily need a passport. You could get one. There were passport offices. Um, you didn't need visas. Travel was really easy. And then you get World War One, and World War One is is part of the reason that the borders start closing. It, it's it starts right before World War One borders start closing, it gets much, much harder to travel. And so where we are now with you, that's actually where we were 100 years ago, which is ironic.
0: When well, you actually, you grew up in Hungary, right? Was that part of your, um, was that mo- motivating you at all to set the story there?
1: Yes, I grew up there a little bit. So I lived in Hungary until I was five years old, because my family is Hungarian. People sometimes ask me, because I've traveled a lot and I've moved around a lot. Oh, were you part of a military family? Because I sound American, right? And I say, no, I'm actually Hungarian. I was born in Budapest. And I live, at, you can tell too, because I say Budapest rather than Budapest, because in Hungarian, the S sound is sh, is a sh, south. so uh, I was born there. Um, and my mother left with me and my younger brother when I was Five years old. We lived in Brussels for a little while, and then we came to the U.S. when I was seven. So I've been speaking American English since I was seven. But I've been back to Hungary. I went back for the first time when I was a teenager, when it was um, still communist, and also when there were still lots of border restrictions. It was behind the Iron Curtain. Um, and I've been back for a while. I was going back every couple of years. Now I try to go back every year. Because it, you know, it's, it's my hometown. Budapest is my hometown. And it's a city I know really well. Um, so that my love for Budapest, which I think is the most wonderful, magical city in the world was part of the reason that I set the story there. But also my characters are up against a secret society and you see this in the first novel and it and it's in the blurb so again you know i'm not giving anything away but they're against they're up against a secret society of scientists who are practicing alchemy it's called the associated alchemists and i thought okay where in europe would the headquarters of the associated alchemists be and it has to be budapest because even at the time budapest had a kind of mystique it was a city that was um It was associated with the exotic, with the strange. It was seen as kind of the edge of Europe. Also, if you read Dracula, which is one of the uh, novels that I wrote about in my dissertation, there's a certain attitude toward Hungary. Um, Because, of course, you know, Dracula, Dracula's Hungarian, which I love. Actually, Dracula is uh, Seike which is it's a tribe, um that settled uh in a certain part of Transylvania. Um at least this is what Bram Stoker tells us. I I don't think the I don't think um Vlad Dracula, the historical figure that he's kinda sort of based on, I don't think he was. But um Bram Stoker tells us that Dracula is Seike. And um my grandmother comes from came from that particular tribe. She was Seike. So, you know, Mm I I belong to that. Um my family actually comes historically from that part of Transylvania. Um and so the reference to Hungary as this very exotic place and a place of monsters. Um and that part of the world in general, Hungary, Transylvania, etc. that's already in the literature. And so I'm even though I personally love Budapest, it comes from the original books that this was the exotic location where monsters ultimately come from.
0: Are there any additional literary sources that you're drawing on in the second book that weren't in the first one? Yes. Is it a spoiler to talk about them?
1: Um. Let me think. Hang on just a minute. I don't want to give too much away. I'll give you the really obvious one because it's set up in the first novel. You can already tell, but, but there's a lot. It, I'm going to be drawing on Dracula. Um, so uh let me think if there's there's some others. Um, yeah, I'm not going to tell you about those yet though. Okay, but fine. I will tell you that we are going into Dracula territory. So second novel, which makes sense, right? Because we're going to Vienna. So we are going to be going to Vienna, and we're going to be going to Budapest.
0: Yeah, I was kind of curious. um Or I want to I want to bring up to the format of the novel because it's written in this really interesting unique style could you talk about kind of how you came up with the the form of the book
1: yeah so i took a risk um the the novel is about women's voices right women speaking um and i wanted to have their voices in there and in a way i wanted it to be (laughs) i hope readers don't get mad at me for this i don't know they might but I, I wanted to, it to be a little bit of a cacophony. Um, and I didn't want there to be this one controlling authorial voice because that's not what the novel is about. So that's one thing that went into the voice, that I wanted to hear the characters' voices. I wanted to hear them talking. To me. The other thing that went into it is that if you look at these monstrous texts from the Victorian era, the monstrosity isn't just, In the fact that they're monstrous characters, the texts themselves are monstrous, the forms of the text in that, for example, Dracula is a Frankenstein's monster of a text because it is stitched together out of diary entries and recordings and newspaper articles. So the the form of the text itself is a monster. Um. And when I say monster, there's a, a technical definition of a monster that comes from a book called On Monsters, An Unnatural History of Our Worst Fears, written by a wonderful scholar named Stephen Asma. And he says that monsters are creatures that embody a kind of categorical mismatch, meaning that their different parts don't fit together. We think something is monstrous when the parts don't fit. We're like, what is this? Right? Um, and different texts are monstrous in different ways. Dr. and Mr. Hyde is monstrous in that it's a frame narrative, but the frame doesn't end. There's no closing frame. If you look at the forms of these original novels, they're all playing with form. So I had to too, and I wasn't sure how to do it. I knew I wanted extra information in there. And one way of doing that, happens in one of my favorite novels in the entire world, which is Jonathan Strange and Dr. Norrell. And what Susanna Clark does in that novel is she has footnotes. I love the footnotes. I don't find things like that annoying because I guess because I'm a scholar and I love reading footnotes, but she has different histories going on and different stories going on in the footnotes. I didn't want footnotes. Um, also, she done it. Like, I'm not going to compete with Susanna Clark. She's awesome. Hmm. Um, but I wanted the voices of the girls speaking. And that's what I had done in a short story. When I first started writing this novel, I actually tried writing it as a traditional narrative. And it just lay there on the page. And I thought, you know, this isn't coming alive for me. And if it's not coming alive for me, then I don't think it's going to come alive for other people. So what happens is that the narrative itself is actually written by Catherine, who's a writer. Um, She didn't just write this book. She also writes other books. She writes short stories. She tries to make money from her writing. And she's kind of a pulp fiction writer. So she is writing this book to make money, but the other girls are in the room with her or they come and go as she's writing this book and they look over her shoulder and they comment on it. So sometimes the narrative is interrupted by two of the other characters having an argument in the middle of a scene. And then Catherine says, why are you interrupting my narrative? So it's almost like a novel that's interrupted by little bits of script. And I knew I was taking a chance because I knew that some readers would go, wow, this is annoying. Someone keeps interrupting this dream of a story because that's what a a story is. It's like a dream that's going on in your head or a movie that's playing where your head is the movie theater. But I wanted to take that risk because I thought it worked. I thought it fit. I knew some people wouldn't like it. And in the end, the kind of annoyance you might feel at being interrupted is also the annoyance that Catherine feels at being interrupted in the story that she's writing. There's one other point I was I, I wanted to make about this, and now it's, it's gone out of my head. I, I'm not sure what it was. Oh, yeah, it had to do with... So this is where my kind of professor hat, my literary crit hat goes on. But there's a, a term that comes from um, a critic named and he talks about the carnival ask and a novel is carnival as when it allows multiple voices and sometimes those voices are contradicting each other. And, and the carnival ask, it's not necessarily a new form, but I think of it as something that modern writers do a lot, that they don't have that kind of controlling voice as much. Um, it's the Jane Austen voice. Jane Austen was the absolute mistress of this voice which is the voice of the narrator that leads you through the story and makes the judgments for you. Um, and she does it very well. You don't want to compete with Jane Austen. But what modern literature does is tries to break up that omniscient voice. Um, and so I was playing with form as much as I was playing with content.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because there are parts, too, where Catherine will kind of say, well, I wasn't here for this, so Diana will have to write this part, and then I'll go back and kind of fix it up with my pretty writing and make it sound like the rest of the story, and the people will say, like, oh, I like the the writing style here, and it sounds <laughs> like, like things like that. It's really, it's really interesting.
1: There's actually a part I wrote in the second book, again, no spoilers, but um, where... Mary is in a garden and she mentions the flowers that are growing in that garden. And someone interrupts and says, Mary doesn't know the names of those flowers. <laughs> and Mary says, no, I, I don't know the names of those flowers. Then Catherine says, yeah, but I'm in Mary's point of view. So I can't just jump to somebody else's point of view to name the flowers. So, so it, you know, it, in a way. I was struggling to write a novel. Um, this is a really complicated novel to write. Writing a novel is really hard. And so the struggles that I had writing a novel are the struggles that Catherine has. And what I've done that's different is that I haven't written over those. I haven't papered over them. I'm explicit, right? It is in fact hard when you want to describe something, but you're in a certain character's head and that character wouldn't notice that then. Like, what do you do? Um, actually you could pull a Tolkien. There's a moment in, I think it's the first Lord of the Rings book where um he quickly jumps into the head of a fox and then jumps out again. And you're like, wait, what? All of a sudden <laughs> we're seeing the hobbits from the fox's point of view, and then the fox goes off and like he has nothing to do with the narrative.
0: Well, and the the characters are kind of genre aware too, because right at the beginning, um, Mary's looking in the mirror and thinking about how she looks like a monster, and then the characters Say something like, "Oh, I don't believe you really looked in the mirror and thought that." She's like, "No, but in this kind of story, the monster always has to look in the mirror and, uh, you know, remark on its monstrous appearance and things like that."
1: Yeah, there's some things in this story that oh, are sorry,
0: Catherine. That's probably Catherine.
1: Yeah, that's that is Catherine because she's talking about um how how to write a book about monsters, right? There are some things in here that are kind of little jokes that nobody's going to get. I mean, I don't even know why I do this, but I do. Um, so for example. That's one. Oh, the, the name of the book. Um, the, um, the strange case of the alchemist's daughter. I mean, there are people who complain about there being so many books about so-and-so's daughter, right? It's the <laughs> beautiful something's daughter. And I was like, yeah, but I, I want to, this is almost like a joke on that because in a way it, it really is, it's a book about being a daughter and the daughter of a mad alchemist or scientist. Um, but but I I wanted to play with the fact that that is a bit of a cliche, um, and uh, how you write a book about monsters. I wanted to kind of play with that. And also, one of the things you're told never ever ever to do as a writer is have a character describe himself by looking in a mirror. I'm like, I'm going to start with that and get it out of the way. Hmm. My character looks in the mirror because <laughs> she's a monster, and then Catherine justifies it. Um, there's the the level this goes to, just so you know, is um. Nobody's going to care about this, but um, the butcher. There's a point at which Mrs. Poole complains about having to pay butchers' bills. And she talks about Mr. Biles the butcher. And actually, that comes from a letter written by Stevenson himself. He was talking about how he really needed to get more writing done because Biles the butcher needs to be paid and his bills are, you know, piling up. So that was actually, it was either Stevenson's butcher actual butcher, or
0: um, he was making a joke too i don't know yeah what do you think about other um books and shows and things that have dealt with these kind of victorian monsters like um penny dreadful or league of extraordinary gentlemen or i don't know if you know the roger Zelazny novel uh, night in the lonesome october have you or what do you think do you have any thoughts I've about heard it i haven't
1: read it um i love league of extraordinary gentlemen i thought that was so much fun i haven't read all of them but um but I just, I love the way it was done. Um, there weren't enough girls, <laughs> or there weren't enough women, which is one of the reasons I wrote my book, because I feel as though they always focus on the men. And I actually heard just yesterday that BBC is planning to do another Dracula. And I'm all for more Dracula, because I love Dracula too. Um, he's another one of my literary precious. but, you know, it's. It's yet another of these narratives from the male perspective, and I thought I really wanted to um, look at them from a female perspective. For the most part, I really love them. Um, there are some where I feel as though, naming no names, but there's some where I feel as though, um, people aren't really engaging with the original material. And if you love the original material and you Back the original material. You kind of owe it to that material to really be in conversation with it. Like you don't just want to take something. If you're if you've got a friend, you don't just want to take stuff from that friend. You want to say, Hey, can I borrow this from you? And I'll give you something back too. Um, it's um, it's also true of fairy tales, which is another thing I really love. And the modern retellings of fairy tales that are really good. Are the ones that are actually kind of in a conversation with a brother's grip or in a conversation with Charles Perot and, and sort of talking to the originals. And, and when books don't do that or shows don't do that, I think it's, it happens more with shows, to be honest, and especially big budget movies. Um, where, you know, the director decides, Oh, I'm going to do this. Isn't Frankenstein cool? But then doesn't really engage with what's really going on in Frankenstein
0: at a deeper level I mean there's an interesting line toward the end of the book where one of the characters is, is sort of imagining what Mary Shelley might think if she were to read this this book your book mm-hmm. and and she she says i think she would have excused its defects and praised it as an accurate portrayal of a group of women trying to get along in the world as best they can yeah And I was wondering if you could talk about, like, in what way do you think that having a group of women as opposed to a group of men, how does that affect the way the story goes or the way it's told?
1: That's interesting.
0: Um... I mean, I'll give you my my observation is that the characters seem to be a lot more supportive of each other than a group of men would be. You know, I feel like a group of men would be just, like, giving each other crap all the time and mocking each other and you know, constantly vying to see who's top dog and stuff like that. And there's just a different dynamic with at least this group of women.
1: I was thinking about which groups of men I can really think of. Um, and the one that comes to mind most readily is in Dracula, when all the men band together to hunt vampires and they they actually really exclude Nina, which is a bad idea. You shouldn't exclude (laughs) Nina. It's awesome. Um, and that's the one I can really think of most readily. Most of the men that I can think of are loners, right? I mean, these, especially mad scientist stories tend to be about men who are very much alone. Like Dr. Jekyll is radically alone. He even rejects his friends. Frankenstein is very much alone. They're about men keeping secrets and not being able to talk to anybody else, which seems to me actually a very masculine narrative. I mean, I don't know if you as a guy feel this, but um, it seems to me that the way we're socialized in Western society, a lot of guys don't talk about things. And so it's, it makes sense that they'd be off by their lonesome. Um, in Dracula, that's different because the men do band together. They don't talk though. That's the thing. Like Jonathan Harker and, um, Holmwood and Seward, they don't sit around going, Hey, did you see what Van Helsing was wearing the other day? Do you think <laughs> that looks good on him? I don't think that looks really good on him. So you don't, you're right. You don't find that kind of camaraderie. And they also, they don't really have money problems because Homewood is rich. So these girls, first of all, they don't have money. They need to make money. And they need to make money in a society where it's difficult for women to work. So they need to find a way to support themselves. Um, and also they, they, And they gossip and they get into fights. It's like living with your four
2: sisters,
1: (laughs) which is, if you don't have any sisters, I can tell you, like, I I actually, I didn't grow up with my sisters, but, um, but I know women's relationships, uh, especially with sisters, it can be pretty fraught.
0: So do you think that that'll come up? Is that going to come up in book two, the more, uh? Fraught aspects of female relationships.
1: Yes. Um, most yes, because they disagree about things, and sometimes they disagree about really important things. And what I like about these characters, I mean, there's a sense in which I wrote them. I guess there's a sense in which they kind of wrote them, write themselves, wrote and write themselves. Um, so. They seem to really get along pretty well. Um, Catherine is a bit of a lone puma. <laughs> <laughs> so she, she tends to go off by herself and make decisions and, you know, um, uh, not necessarily listen to the others all the time. Diana's her own thing. She, she's constantly getting into trouble. She's constantly, um, you know, getting the others mad. So a lot of the conflict has to do with Diana and a lot of Mary's conflict has to do with Diana because on the one hand, she gets very fond of Diana. On the other hand, Diana is just constantly annoying. It's like, I don't know if you have siblings, but like a little brother or a little sister who's, you know, constantly, you're like, you're supposed to watch your little sibling and your little sibling continually getting into really bad trouble. (laughs) That's the situation. So, yeah, I I think you. You do see that. And for me, I don't know if other people will read it this way, but for me, this is really a book about sisterhood.
0: Yeah, I thought one thing that came through very clearly is how much you like these characters. I mean, there is this amazing mystery action plot in the book, but I feel like you would just be happy just hanging out with these characters, just sitting around having them drink tea and talk and... That, that would, you know, that you have that sort of rapport with the characters?
1: I like them. They're awesome. I'd love to go visit them and, you know, stay with Mary for a while at the Athena Club. Um, the funny thing is that some comments that I've seen, <laughs> I, I try not to pay too much attention to things people say, especially when I'm revising the second book, because I want to sort of keep it in my head. But I, I do want to sort of know, I mean, I, no novel is perfect, right? Every novel has flaws. My novel's going to have flaws. But I have seen one comment that um, that I'm not going to take to heart. And the comment is, oh, well, after the action ends, there's this period where the girls are sitting around and having teeth. Again, not a spoiler, because it doesn't really tell you anything. except so they sit around and have teeth. And I'm like, Man, that's the or woman, whatever. But hmm. that's the most important part. It's like, yeah, you go on adventures, but then, but then you bond, and it's those for me. The most important moments aren't actually the moments where you're, you know, having the big adventure scenes. Um, it's the moments when you have characters that are sitting around and they're talking and they're getting to know each other. Um, in a way, what I did was use, and again, this is, this could be something that people don't like, but I tried to use two different ways of writing and thinking about writing. One is this kind of pulp sensibility, which is like, yes, let's like go off and have adventures and defeat monsters or be monsters. And then the other was a realistic novel about women living in the 19th century and getting along and, and trying to get along while they're all you know, working together, getting to know each other, and the tension, and that's that's actually that could be a realistic book, and it's wedded to the pulp stuff. And the two things, you know, I, I hope I um, put them together reasonably well, but but there's going to be a tension there, and I I'm sure some readers are going to feel it.
0: One thing I wanted to ask you is you mentioned that a lot of these classic monsters all sort of arose around the same couple of decades. But actually, I mean, Frankenstein and um, John Polidori's The Vampire, the first modern vampire, the first yes. big one, was like literally at the same party. You know, it, there, was, there was some – there's just yes. definitely something going on at this time.
1: Yes, um, which was much earlier, right? Um, Frankenstein was published in 1818. I don't remember the publication date of The Vampire – but yeah, you had this party where Lord Byron was sitting around with Mary Shelley, Percy Shelley, Claire Clairmont, John Polidori, Um, and you have these two iconic texts, *The Vampire* and *Frankenstein*, coming out of it. Um, it. It partly, I think, has to do with the fact that ends of centuries, beginnings and ends of centuries, are these moments of transition. And so you have those two texts coming out of a transitional period at the end of one century and beginning of the next, and then another hundred years passes, and you have these other iconic novels coming again in that liminal period. Um, technically, it's called a siècle, which is the end of the century, um, but it's that transitional period, that liminal period, when it feels to us psychologically as though everything's changing. And notice, by the way, that we're in a transitional and liminal period, and there's so many monsters. So we're in another one of those periods where where it feels appropriate to write monster stories. Um but yeah, that's it's uh those are also two excellent examples and um Frankenstein I definitely talked about here and um uh Polydoria I, I won't talk about quite yet. Hmm.
0: <laughs> I thought uh, you know, I took a class in college on Frankenstein, and I would really encourage people to read the novel. It's it's really really good. And one thing is that you should read, according to my professor, who was a Mary Shelley scholar, you should read the 1818 text because apparently, which is the one we read, because apparently then Percy Shelley rewrote it subsequently. And uh, this professor at least felt that he had kind of messed it up. I
1: yeah, I actually disagree with that, but that's okay. Um, not to, you know, not to disagree with your college professor, um, but, um, um, yeah, one of the things I wanted to make sure and do in this novel is kind of make clear how much I owe to Mary Shelley, because Mary Shelley is one of my idols. So it was sort of like, um... If Catherine bows down to Mary Shelley, it's because I'm bowing down to Mary Shelley. <laughs> um, and Catherine is, is deeply influenced by Shelley because Shelley is one of our most important women writers, um, especially for those of us who write fantasy and science fiction. And I would make the argument that this book is a work of science. Well, maybe not science fiction. It's a work of scientific romance, the way that um, H.G. Uh, Wells used that term because everything in it is completely plausible if you accept Victorian notions of science, which are very different than our notions of science. It's like Victorian science fiction. Um, but uh, yeah, I wanted to make sure that we um, gave Mary Shelley her due. So she's she's deeply influential on Catherine herself. And I would say, yes, yeah, absolutely read Frankenstein. Frankenstein is, the book is so much, more complicated than any movie version could possibly be. It's so smart. It's so interesting. Frankenstein's monster is such an interesting character. And the the edition issue, you know, I I would say if I there, there's controversy over how much Percy had to do with the 1832 edition. So I'm I don't know um, how much he actually changed. Um, I've seen people make the argument that actually it really was Mary Shelley's creation. Uh, so um, you know I I my take on it is I actually prefer the 32 edition because it fleshes some things out a lot more. Um, there are, there are some things in there that we know. Mary put in, and we know the reasons she put them in, and there are topical references to political things that happened at the time. Uh, at the same time, yeah, read the 18, 18 edition and see what she wrote. She was a teenager when she wrote this, and when I teach it, I tell my students, you know, this was, this was a girl who was not much older than you were, and she wrote this absolutely brilliant novel.
0: Yeah, the way I remember it was that the eighteen eighteen version came out, and people had said that it was grotesque and that it was uh uh not sufficiently uh pious and stuff like that and and it and it had been rewritten in some ways to emphasize that Dr. Frankenstein had transgressed against God, which was not really the such a huge point of the original text
1: there was a more religious message. the other thing is that um, the relationship between not the relationship i think the well, like technically the relationship between Frankenstein and Elizabeth, the woman he's in love with, changed because um, they were. Uh, I'm doing this from memory, so I hope I'm not wrong about this, but um, they were something like cousins in the 1818 edition. And the kind of the perception of what was too close of a relative um, changed over time. and And they were made. Kind of adoptive brother and sister, but not actually related in any way. I think I remember that that was the case. So yeah, there were, there were parts of it that, um, that, um, definitely were responding to criticisms, things that were happening at the time. Um, so, um, I think, you know, we both. <laughs> it, <laughs> I, I'm sure everyone has their sort of favorite, um, favorite version and they're both fascinating
0: do you i guess do you have any other um tips or like things people should keep in mind if they go back and read dracula or jekyll and hyde or anything any of of these kinds of books
1: i mean the, the main thing i would say is go back and read them because you're going to be surprised you think you know them and you don't they're um especially if you have a general cultural idea of what they're like you're going to go oh Dracula is so much more complicated than I assumed it would be. And Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is not about a guy who splits himself into his good and evil sides. That's not what it's about at all. So we have a cultural construct of what these texts are about that doesn't match what's actually in the texts. The, the, these texts, you know, they're seen as part of popular culture. I would say if you can, Read some books about them after you've read them, or maybe take a class on them because there's so much fascinating stuff there in terms of how they fit into history and historical ideas. It it really helps to understand Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde if you understand something about the controversies over Darwinian evolutionary theory, for example. Um, so, yeah, I guess, I guess my tip is, um, read them. (laughs) and also try to get a sense for their historical
0: context. Well, when you talk about reading books about them, um, I read a book years ago, it was called Bram Stoker and the Man Who Was Dracula. And the premise of it was that Bram Stoker had based the character of Dracula on Henry Irving, I think was his name, who was the most famous actor of his day.
1: Yeah, and he was a good friend of, well, he was a good friend of Bram Stoker's, but he was also Stoker's boss, because uh, Stoker lived in London, and he was actually the manager of the Lyceum Theater that was Henry Irving's theater for many, many years. I totally buy that. And the reason I totally buy it is that um, I- I'm sure he based at least something on Henry Irving, because one of the first things he did after the book was published was try to get Henry Irving to do a play version, and he really wanted Irving to play Dracula.
0: Yeah, it's just so interesting for me because I don't know. I, I I've said before, I think that I just you just imagine Bram Stoker, the guy who wrote Dracula. I just imagine him as sort of this goth guy in a castle somewhere, you know. And it's like, no, he was this redheaded Irish guy who ran a theater company and they performed for the Queen and it's just, you know it's just not yeah. not the stereotypical thing you kind of picture.
1: No, he was really big and athletic, actually. Um the funny thing is nobody <laughs> I shouldn't say nobody Some people read things by Bram Stoker other than Dracula. His other literature is, it's really interesting. He wrote some very realistic novels and then he wrote some other sort of gothic things because that was really popular at the time. So there's The Queen of Seven Stars, which actually is one of um, my favorites about uh, these archaeologists who find an Egyptian queen who's been mummified called Queen Tara. And they're like, ooh, let's revive Queen Tara. So this is an early mummy. Story. Um, and then there's the Lair of the White Worm, which is this crazy gothic novel that I I think never even really reached its finished form. I think he was writing it while he was already ill and it it never quite got finished. Um, but that's really strange. And then he wrote some short stories. His short stories are really weird. I think they're now published in a volume called Dracula's Guest and Other Stories. And the first story, usually placed as the first story, is Dracula's Guest, And um, it, it's a short story that was meant to be the first chapter of Dracula. It actually was taken out of the book because he felt like it didn't fit. Um, but it's Jonathan Hartford going to Transylvania, and he meets a female vampire. And this is one—oh, sorry. No, it's not Transylvania. It's Styria. And this is one of the ways we know that he was deeply influenced by the news— with the news novella, Carmilla, because that female vampire is based on Carmilla. Oh, little funny thing. When you read Dracula, there's one point where Jonathan Harker sees a beautiful blonde female vampire and he says, she reminded me of something, but I don't remember what. She, he recognizes her because she was in that early chapter that was uh-huh. taken out of the book. <laughs> so like, he met her in a chapter that didn't make it into the book.
0: <laughs> That's really interesting. I mean, you mentioned that, you mentioned one piece of feedback that you got that you're going to ignore, but have there been other, um, pieces of feedback you've gotten on this book so far that have kind of stood out for you?
1: I mean, I've, I've gotten, uh, it, it's not so much feedback. It's just sort of hearing the chatter and what people are writing and reviews. And I, you know, when you're a writer, you can't pay too much attention to reviews because sometimes people hate the book and then you're like, wow, I must suck. And it never helps to do that. But, um, there are things where people have said, Oh, this is about young women coming together and forming a, a found family. And I've been like, Yes, you got it. Yeah, that's it. Yay, I did it. Um, or you got it. And, you know, hopefully I put something in there that made you get that out of it. Um, so that's been really helpful. There, there are things like, Oh, the, the girls talking during the writing of the novel is a little annoying, where I've been like, Yeah, I know. Catherine said so too. I know it's annoying. <laughs> I'm sorry. But they did it. So I, I don't know what to do about that. It's like when, you know, you're trying to tell a story and people are chiming in. It is annoying. Um I I haven't read anything yet that makes me go, Oh, yeah. I need to do something differently, or uh, the, what I what I am getting that's very helpful is I'm working on a revision of the second novel, and I got comments from my editor. My editor is brilliant, and so th- there are things she said where I've gone, oh, yeah, you know, I, I don't want to do the exact thing that you told me to do, but I understand why you told me to do it, and it means I didn't do this thing that I wanted to do well enough, and there are things she said that made me go, oh. That's how it goes. Okay. Now I understand. Because you get someone who's a really good editor and they make you look at your work differently. And so when you think about how I wrote this novel, people think, oh, the writer sits down and starts typing and the novel comes out. And it's like, no, I'm in conversation with, I'm in conversation with a drain pipe in London. I mean, that drain pipe gave me an idea. And I'm in conversation with my editor and she gave me an idea. And um, the first novel, I um, gave part of the novel to my writing group, which um, included these amazing people. The people who looked at it were, Elia Sherman was there, Ellen Datlow was there, Claire Cooney was there, Kat Valente was there. Those were the four people that I gave an early draft to. And the feedback they gave me um, changed my perspective on the novel. And that was really helpful.
0: Yeah, that's quite a uh, quite a power, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, for, this, for this type of book.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, dream like team, yeah. The, it's like the dream team. If you can imagine four people to actually look at this novel, those are them.
0: <laughs> and Novel Wolf is your edit, was the editor on the book?
1: Novel Wolf, who is yeah. amazing, from Saga Press, is the editor. And I'm so, so, so glad that she liked this book. And was enthusiastic about it. And the best thing about it was when she bought it, she didn't say, "Oh, well, we think this is commercial and it will sell." She said, "I get these women. I totally understand what they're doing. And this is a." Um, she called it. I'm trying to remember her words. She called it a "lady bro" um, <laughs> novel. She's like, "I've been looking for a team of women like this. This is what I, you know, what I want to publish." And I was like, "Yes." Not only do you like it, but you like it for the exact same reason that I wrote it. Cause I want to see a team of women go out there and be monsters, but also do things.
0: Have you had any interest yet from film or TV people? Cause like you said, they're doing another Dracula and it's kind of, you know, that this is more kind of an original spin on, on this sort of material.
1: I think so. Uh, <laughs> that's what I would say to the people doing yet another Dracula. Um, yes. I will say that yes, we've had some interest. Um, I, I'm always, you know, what they tell you when you're a writer, and what writers tell each other is, okay, so someone optioning something only means that something's been optioned. It doesn't mean anything else. There's so many novels out there that get interest from film companies and somebody options something and it doesn't necessarily mean anything. It doesn't mean it's actually going to be produced. So I will say, yes, we have actually had interest, which has been wonderful. I would love it if this were made into something like a TV series. And it's not because, it's not just because I wrote it. It's because, um, if you think about what it would look like visually, you know, it would be set in the late 19th century. You could do so much in terms of costumes and settings. Um, it could be gorgeous, you know, just even apart from the plot lines. But the other thing is people talk about how there, there aren't as many good roles for women as there should be. You know, there are a lot of female characters in this book and seeing some really amazing actresses get to be like a puma woman or a gentle, melancholy giantess, or the very proper Mrs. Poole. That would be amazing. I mean, I think they would be good acting roles for women, and and that would be a lovely thing to see, to see more women on screen.
0: Yeah, no, that would be great. So, uh, yeah, I really hope that happens.
1: Oh, and none of them is the love interest of anybody else. Actually, <laughs> in a way, if you think about it, The male characters in this novel are seen from a female gaze. I didn't write it that way. I, you know, it's just, I can't help it because I have a female gaze. So, you know, the Sherlock Holmes character here is the Sherlock Holmes I had a crush on. He's definitely seen from a female perspective.
0: Hmm. Um, Okay, so Dora, so we're pretty much out of time. So I guess just, um, do you have any just final thoughts you want to say or uh, any other projects you want to mention or anything like that?
1: The big project right now is writing the second book. So um, I will say that, well, I'll say, you know, hopefully people will buy the first book and read it and like it or get it from the library. I am so hundred percent behind libraries. Libraries saved me when I was a kid and I know they do that to a lot of other people. So go to your library, ask for a coffee um, or go to your bookstore. They should have it too. Um, And and then the second book um, will be the next, big project so those are the two things i'm
0: really focused on right now all right great yeah and so this book once again it's called the strange case of the alchemist's daughter and so we've been talking to theodora goss the author and so dora thank you so much for joining us thank you
1: so much david this has been
0: lovely and that was our interview so a big thanks again to theodora goss for joining us on the show and remember that geeks guide to the galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you so if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I'd like to give a special thank you to C. Mosher, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. C. Mosher writes, I've listened since the io9 days, and I figured it was time to pony up. I just finished the Prisoners of Gravity episode, and boy does that hit the nostalgia feels. I was 10 when it first came out. I live in a smaller city about four hours north of Toronto, so the episodes I managed to watch were my introduction to SF fandom beyond reading Arthur C. Clarke and Ray Bradbury and watching the episodes of Doctor Who that were on TVO. Keep up the good work. So special thanks again to C. Mosher for supporting us on Patreon and for writing us that nice note. And as always, big thanks as well to everyone else out there who's contributed. We really appreciate it. Alright, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time.